Ahoy, authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 133 of the Writership Podcast. Today, I'm talking about progressive complications, the elements within scenes and stories that stand between the characters and their goals. This is the second in a series of episodes on scene elements to help you craft scenes that work and evaluate them. If you want to learn more about the podcast, read the show notes, and grab this week's editorial mission, visit Writership dot com slash podcast. Okay, as of the day I'm recording this episode, there are 100 days left in 2018. So it's a great time to think about what you'd like to accomplish with the time that's left in this year. In the Writership Podcast community on Slack, I've started a channel for accountability so we can support each other in reaching our writing goals. So if you could use some help staying focused on your goals and want to hang out with some really cool people, visit writership.com slash slack for all the details. Okay, we're going to get right into the episode, the meat of the episode that is this week, because there's a lot to cover, and I'm really excited about it. So we always start with a quote, of course. Here's a quote from Sean Coyne. Progressive complications move stories forward, never backward. They do so by making life more and more difficult in positive as well as negative ways for your lead character. In other words, you cannot have your protagonist stare down the same dilemma in Act 3 or Act 2 that the character already faced in Act 1. You must progressively move from one dilemma to a more trying dilemma to a bigger problem to an even bigger problem. We covered conflict in episode 122 with the opening scene from Seeker, a science fiction novella by Smith and Chaos, which is lovely, and I hope you'll check it out. But here we're going to look a little deeper into progressive complications and what they're supposed to do for your stories and scenes. And all of this is kind of A lot of this, I should say, is coming out of some great things that I learned during the StoryGrid summer course. And to help us look at progressive complications, we have a submission from Anna Ferguson. The Empire of Saffron is a YA science fiction novel of about 100,000 words that is not yet published at the time of recording. Now, Anna was really generous and shared a big submission um, from her very big novel. Um, And I can't read all of it in in the episode, but I've included the entire submission in the show notes. So please, please, please go and check it out there because you're going to miss some really great stuff that only time is preventing me from including here. So again, go check out the show notes so you can read the entire submission. So what you need to know uh, about the excerpt, because I've had to take off some of the very beginning of the scene, is that Esmeralda is a young woman 
who is of the nobility of her culture. And she is really eager to please the empress, who is the first person who speaks in this excerpt. And Esmeralda, who's also known as Mary, is attending her first trial and she it's her intention to become a juror um, as her, you know as her profession. So this is a really important moment in her life. So it's important for you to know that before before we get started. You are gathered to witness the People's Judiciary hearing of Saffron City for the second month of year 806, the Empress begins in a ringing tone. I, your twelfth reigning Empress, pledge before you all and before the entirety of the void that I will judge with eyes unclouded by bias. I will show neither favoritism nor prejudice of status, gender, or race. I will illuminate the truthful and cast shadow over the guilty, for I am an instrument of the void, and my foremothers share their ancient knowledge with me. They tell me all. The breathy heat from the audience builds, pressing against the cooled sweat on my skin with feverish effect. My attention drifts, as it always does when the Empress gives one of her speeches. I must have heard a, at least a thousand in my lifetime, and now her words hold all the intrigue of a dripping tap. Will she make this speech in, in every hearing? The rest of the proceedings had better be more exciting. I don't have time to reconsider my calling, not with the ceremony so close. A noble said this hearing is investigating a murder. Now that would be excitement. Seeing an actual killer, a monster in human flesh. It's probably just a rumor, though. Nobles tend to get carried away by their imagination. The empress finishes her speech and humbly bows to the nobles' applause. She introduces the court's investigator, Inga, a squat, dark-haired woman. Reluctantly, the audience's attentions leave the empress as Inga begins to speak. The court shall now open its first and only case of the day, an act of arson which resulted in the deaths of Vladimir Termut and his two sons Davy and Brad, aged nine and fourteen respectively. The incident occurred during bright night on the 68th day of the second month. Direct cause of death is unknown due to the severe incineration of the bodies. The accused is Samuel Reeves, friend and colleague of victim Vladimir Termut, who shall now be examined. Shocked titters emanate from the balcony. Such a terrible crime rarely occurs on Saffron. Most hearings deal with petty theft, accidents in the workplace, drunken brawls, or the occasional gang caught assaulting a guard. A troop of guards enter the courtroom and lead a young man to the side of the bench where a large prism sits, made from clear crystal panels with a manacled chair inside. I recognize the crystal, lucidium, though I've only ever seen it in its natural form, a solid cube which fits near, neatly in the palm of one's hand. 
Scrolls say lucidium is the strongest substance known in the Empire, and that the panels are used on the nav decks of carrier ships. Using them to contain a shackled prisoner seems a bit excessive. The accused man, Reeves, isn't how I I expect a murderer to appear. He's shorter and not even slightly menacing. His bald head doesn't even reach the top of the metal chair he is chained to. How does the accused plead? Reeves gazes dully at a section of wall at the back of the room. Not guilty, he says in a soft voice. Noted, the court will now present the testimonial evidence. Bring Jeremy Smith to the witness stand. A minuscule figure emerges from the commoners. He steps up to the podium and promptly disappears behind it. Only a tuft of his hair sticks out the top. People snicker as a guard sprints from the court, returning with a stool for the young boy to stand on. With Jeremy sufficiently heightened, Inga brings her questioning. For the court, can you state your name and age, please? My name is Jeremy Smith, and I will be nine years old in twelve days. Despite his loud, clear voice, the boy stares shyly down at the surface of the stand, his cheeks flushed. Father says I get to have nine candles on my birthday cake, but I don't want any because they drip and make the case taste bad. Thank you, Jeremy. Could you tell us about the night you saw the fire, please? Okay, I woke up and really had to pee. Jeremy's cheeks turned a darker shade of pink. Sorry, I mean, I had to use the washroom. When it's bright night, Father closes down the shutters, so I have to run down the stairs in the dark. I have to run real fast so that the, so the monsters don't get me. But I have to be quiet, too, or Father will wake up and become a monster. The washroom is always the blackest. I can never see, even see my hands. So I went real carefully to the window and opened the shutter a bit to let in some sunlight. I looked outside, and that's when I saw the man. He was carrying a tank thing. Well kind of dragging it, and he went into my friend Davy's house. Jeremy lowers his head, wiping his nose with his sleeve. We wait as he takes a few shaky breaths. I didn't think it was strange at the time, but after I, uh, used the washroom, I went back to close the shutter, and I saw all this smoke coming from the door and windows. I yelled for father, and when he saw it, he went into the street and started yelling too, the loudest I ever heard. He made me stay in the house, so I didn't see any more after that. That's very helpful, Jeremy, says Inga. I have one more question, please. The man you saw going into the house, is he the same man as the one in that chair over there? Jeremy glances in the direction of Reeves, frayed slippers that are tapping the floor, and then turns quickly away. "Uh Uh-huh, he says in a small voice. Are you sure? "Uh Uh-huh. Okay, thank you, Jeremy. You can go now. 
Jeremy shuffles off the stand and returns to the crowd. I notice Reeves' eyes shift to follow the retreating boy. He doesn't appear perturbed, despite the boy's damaging accusation. Reeves is fortunate. If he does receive a guilty verdict, the Empress will be fair to him. That's how she is. If any of the lesser rulers were judging, Reeves would be li- would likely be shaking in his slippers. Despite all my research, however, the scrolls have been frustratingly vague about the exact nature of sentences given, some being described as a suitable infliction or a reprimand of the highest order. Inga's next witness takes the stand. The man seems to be mostly beard. He dwarves the podium, but but beneath his intimidating visage, I notice that his large knuckles are clenched and whitened, and he shuffles from foot to foot in a nervous dance. Do you confirm that you are Arthur Taveld, currently head chef in Sector 14 of the Saffron Castle Kitchens? Hmm... And you were in charge of both Samuel Reed's and Vladimir Termot? Hmm. How long have you worked with the people in question? Teveld clears his throat. Sam's been working in my kitchen for about seven years. Vlad, four. Then he got promoted to sous chef in Sector 5. How did Sam and Vlad act towards each other? Was there any history of discord between them? Nah, of course not. No fighting in my kitchen, says Tavold, his gravelly voice growing louder. They were good mates, those two. Sam took it on himself to train Vlad up, Vlad being new and all. I take a peek over at Samuel Reeves. It is horrifying to think such an ordinary-looking man could wreak such destruction on another of this kind, and a friend at that. Reeves is still staring at the wall, though his eyes are no longer dull. They are smoldering with emotion. Ah, says Inga, so they were, as you say, good mates. And what happened when Vlad was told of his promotion? Tavold fiddles with the tendrils of his beard. Well, when they told Vlad he'd got the job, the kitchen cheered and clapped him on the back, except for Sam. He looked, uh, a tad disappointed. A couple of plates may have been broken. I knew he'd gone for the job, too. Gave him a recommendation and all. I reckon things might have been tight for him at home, as he was always pressing me for his payment of rations before the end of each month. So what you're saying, Arthur, is that Samuel Reeves, Reeves, who has been working under you for seven years, appeared disappointed in being overlooked for a promotion in favor of Vladimir Termut. Termut being a person Reeves himself had trained and watched over. A person Reeves considered to be his close friend. Well, that might be cause for some resentment, don't you agree? Er... Arthur opens his mouth, but Inga interrupts. Have you witnessed any other disputes between Reeves and Termut? Ah, Arthur clears his throat again. Yeah, just one other. And when was this? Arthur looks down, his voice muffled by his bushy beard. 
a couple of days before Vlad died. Pardon me? Inga pounces upon Arthur's words. Did you say you heard an argument between the victim and the accused just days before the incident occurred? Arthur nods, still staring into his chest. Didn't mean to eavesdrop, just heard voices inside one of the storerooms. What were the voices saying? Didn't hear much, just this one bit. I know what you did. Who said that? Inga asks. Don't know for sure. Heard them argue for a bit, then barged in. Needed to get my ingredients for the soup, see? The empress leans over and whispers into Inga's ear. Inga nods once, then says dismissively, Thank you, Arthur. That will be all. Tavold shakes his bushy head and ambles out of the witness stand, keeping his eyes averted from the lucidium cage and its inhabitant. Something feels wrong here. Arthur seems honest, but it's a stretch to think that Reeves would set his friend's house on fire over a promotion. Still, commoners can act in ways we can never understand. Perhaps in their own In their world, employment is worth killing for. After all, work is their most important function in society. Their only function, in fact. Now, I will present to the court the secondary testimonies. Inga shuffles through a pile of crisp scrolls. Here are the signed statements of three kitchen workers in Sector 14 who witnessed Reeves' disturbing reaction at the announcement of Vladimir Termut's promotion, which included no less than seven plates being thrown by Reeves. She passes a few of the scrolls along to the Empress. Next, I have the testament of a local lender who claims Reeves owes him the equivalent in trade of 672 gems. Shocked murmurs emanate from the shabbily-dressed portion of the courtroom. Even for a noble, this is a high amount. I certainly haven't such a price stashed away in my money chest. The lender has consented to have his testament viewed in court. Inga places a lucidium cube on the bench before her. The calms crane their necks to get a better view of the tiny opaque box. The nobles, of course, barely bat an eye. I'd wager I'm the only noble in the room who does not have a cube in the pocket of my robes. Surely the alchemists who studied and developed the lucidium's properties would be aghast to discover the main use of the cubes is to spread gossip between nobles. On the other hand, perhaps it was the motive behind their invention. Inga slides the activator into the base and the cube starts to glitter with flecks of colored light. There's a soft humming and then a man materializes out of the empty air above the cube. So solid, he could be mistaken for a juror, though a lot more grubby and lacking a torso. The lender duplicate confirms Reeves' enormous debt in a deadpan voice. His hollow eyes tell me that I would not want to owe this man as much as a single grain. The image begins to fray around the edges and slowly fades into obscurity. Inga tucks the cube away and continues. 
My last piece of evidence is a statement from a trader confirming the exchange of four liters of carrier ship fuel to Samuel Reeves for three months of rations. Reeves, I remind the court, does not have access to any carrier ship. Firefighters confirm this fuel to be the cause of the fire. This concludes the evidence against Samuel Reeves. Inga turns and stares sharply at the prisoner. Do you have anything to say in your defense? Reeves refuses to look anywhere but the wall. Didn't do it, he grunts out. Perhaps the man is not all there in the head, or he is simply too much of a coward to admit his guilt? Right, says Inga. We will move on the sentencing. Thank you, people of the court, for being witnesses to the process of justice. First, our noble jurors will cast their vote. Those who believe Samuel Reeves to be guilty, please raise your hand. Inga's arm punches the air and every other juror on the bench imitates her. I hesitate, feeling every set of eyes in the courtroom turn to me. I never expected they would allow me to have a say in this. Heart pounding, I glance at the empress. She gives me a curt nod. Put your hand up, Mary, you fool. Why am I hesitating? The empress is relying on me. Fail her, and I'll lose my calling choice. And anyway, I'd be a poor juror to ignore the evidence stacked up against Reeves. I raise my hand. Thank you, jurors, Inga says. And now we shall await the verdict of our honorable empress. While she considers, I ask for quiet in the courtroom, please. The audience erupts into discussion. According to the loudest voices, Reeves is an abhorrent murderer. The evidence is undeniable. That little man over there, the one who needs a shave, reduced Vladimir and those young boys to piles of ash. Look at him in his shabby moccasins with his initials sewn onto the sides. Of course, he was obsessed with that promotion. Jeers and taunts swell amid the crowd. The empress, no doubt sensing the deterioration of order, rises to deliver her verdict. I offer my gratitude to the chief investigator for her detailed exploration of this case. I have considered the evidence presented to me and the opinions of my trusted jurors. I have listened to the guidance of my foremothers. I take the burden of this judgment onto my shoulders and I bear it with the knowledge that it is just. Samuel Reeves is guilty of this hateful act. I sentence him to be executed. Okay, thanks again to Anna for sharing this really lovely courtroom drama with us right now. Of course, that's not what the whole story is about. But um, but this scene, obviously, we're in a very intense situation in the courtroom. Okay, so we have a really rich and complex world with details that provide a great setup for lots of conflict. Now, again, the excerpt I've read here doesn't do justice to, oddly enough, to the world building in this submission. So please be sure to check out the show notes and read that entire submission. Mary 
or Esmeralda, is a likable and interesting character with complex emotions. She is a really great point of view character and I assume protagonist because she we're getting a view of the world, right, obviously, through her perspective, and she pays close attention. So we're getting a very interesting view of everything that happens. And just as a point um, that I want to mention about point of view characters and, and, and protagonists in general, that what's really great when you have a young protagonist who is somewhat naive um, and, and not experienced in the realm that they're moving into is that they can ask a lot of the questions that we would have as we're reading the story. And so that's a great device um, for conveying information to your readers. The other thing I want to mention about Mary is that I have no trouble empathizing with her or rooting for her uh, in this passage. So it's a really good setup. So today we're looking at progressive complications. And again, they are the people, places, things, and events that stand between a character and their goal in stories and scenes. And I want to provide a very clear explanation of what they are and how they work before we talk about them in the context of the submission. If you remember the inciting incidents discussion from episode 132, you'll be well on your way to understanding progressive complications because the inciting incident upsets the status quo, which causes a desire and then a goal to arise within the mind of the protagonist. And as they pursue that goal, progressive complications are the things that arise in between them, right? Okay, so in pursuit of their goal, the protagonist or point of view character in a scene can encounter four different types of people, places, things, and events. They can be obstacles, which appear to be negative. They can be tools, which appear to be positive. But also, they can encounter elements within the environment and beyond that seem to be irrelevant to the protagonist's pursuit of their goal. And finally, unexpected events. The unexpected event is something that arises from all of those elements that seem irrelevant, but it means that the protagonist won't be able to reach their goal or at least not in the way they originally intended. So again, that unexpected event is a thing that causes the, the protagonist or POV character to not be able to reach their goal in the way they intended. The event forces the protagonist or scene POV character into a dilemma, which is the crisis. And when the protagonist or POV character decides and acts on that decision, which is the climax, consequences unfold, which is the resolution. Okay, so the progressively complicating agents of conflict in a scene can be internal, that is a conflict with oneself, like competing values or desires. They can be interpersonal, that is conflict with another person or people, or extrapersonal, that is conflict with something the character can't have a relationship with, like the environment or society as a whole. 
these complications create a gap between what the character expects will happen and the result of their actions. The result changes the character's circumstances in a particular way that's related to universal human needs, that is, survival, security, love. I'll have an image in the... um, in the show notes for you to take a peek at all of those. So the the thing to remember about progressive complications too is that things keep getting worse. You know, as the quote said, within a scene, your point of view character should face several complications. And as they go along, those complications should become more and more challenging and make it more unlikely that the character will reach their goal. So this is why we call them progressive complications. And this is important because if the obstacles or the complications get easier, the reader loses interest quickly. So no conflict means no tension because we can see how things work out. Now you sometimes do want to let up on the tension, but not usually within a series of complications. Okay, so another way to lose the reader's interest is to repeat the same type of complication without intensifying what's at stake for the character. So it's good to have different types of complications. So if you have, you know, the three different types of conflict, internal, interpersonal, or extrapersonal, you might have different types of progressive complications. So you'll have several complications within your story, of course, and within a scene. And the one that you want to be especially mindful of, no matter which unit of story you're working on within, whether it's the scene, a sequence, an act, or the entire story, is the turning point progressive complication. The turning point is that unexpected event that I mentioned above that forces the character into the dilemma that is the crisis question. Now, why is the turning point progressive complication so important? Well, the main reason is that stories are about change. Robert McKee tells us that scenes are action through conflict that turns the value-charged condition of a character's life. So in other words, conflict arises, the character takes action, and there is change in some kind of condition of the character's life. So if nothing changes from the beginning to the end of the scene, or any unit of story, it's merely a series of of events, and not really a scene. Now there might be reasons why you would have something like that in your story. So I don't want to say like, I don't want to go down saying that every single scene must turn. But if you have a scene that turns, you need to have a really good reason for that. Okay, and I can't get into all of the ins and outs of that right now. But understand that chances are your scene should turn. And if it doesn't, you want to figure out how you can make it do that. So identifying the turning point is really the first step in figuring out whether your scene works because it's whether you have a change from the beginning to the end. So I want to get a little more specific about what it means to turn your scene. We're going to take a small detour. I promise I have a, I'll tie everything up to back together. Um, But we're going to take a small detour to get clear about turning the scene. 
So that turning point represents an event that sits firmly in the gap between what the expect the, what the character and reader incidentally expects will happen and what actually happens. The nature of that difference or the change that occurs in a scene isn't random, but as I said above, impacts the specific human need that we explore in stories within a genre. So I focus on scenes here on the podcast rather than the entire story, but you should know that the way a scene turns should impact the way the story turns. That is, the big change that happens over the course of the entire story is driven by the smaller changes that happen with your, in your scenes. So it's all connected. And the good news is figuring how, how these things progressive complications work within your scenes will help you with how the progressive complications turn your entire story. So there's no wasted effort at all. Okay, so each genre explores challenges to our human needs and fits within one of those human needs tanks that we get from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We talk about tanks, um, instead of the, you know, the pyramid shape. So we talk about tanks that are parallel for human needs tanks, because the pursuit of human needs isn't actually a tidy linear progression. One tank, when full, might make up for another tank that's low in certain circumstances. For example, if you're really hungry, which is a survival need, the effect of that deficit might be temporarily abated if you're with someone you love, which is meeting the need for love and belonging. So the opposite is also true, that a deficit can drain one of the other tanks. So if you get hungry enough, it doesn't matter that you're with someone you love, you might snap at them in a hangry moment. Okay, so again, I'll include a picture of the human needs tank in the show notes so you can kind of get a, get a visual of what I'm talking about here. All right, back to inciting incidents for a moment. Again, I promise I'm coming back full circle to turning points. But we need to think about inciting incidents, right? Because each genre has a particular event that kicks the story off. And that inciting incident represents a threat or opportunity related to the human need at stake in the genre. And all of those genre-specific inciting incidents you can find in the episode 132 show notes. Now, the progressive complications within the story should affect the specific human need at stake in the genre. So, for example, I, I suspect that the story that we're looking at here is what we call a worldview maturation or a coming-of-age story. And so, in that case, the progressive complications make it more and more difficult for a protagonist to hold on to a naive understanding of life and the world that they live in. Now, the changes within scenes will, will be, there will be all kinds of different changes, but you want to make sure that they are connected to and related to the big change that's happening over the course of the story. Okay, so I want to talk a little then a bit about life value shifts. Again, just I know I'm I'm going over a lot of stuff here, but I 
I think it will really help your understanding of the entire concept and help you actually craft them. Because it's one thing to say, oh, you need obstacles. Okay, I'll throw lots of obstacles in, but they really need to be specific obstacles. Life values describe a state or condition of human life experience. Stories are about change. I know I repeat that a lot, but it's really good to to take that in um, because stories are about change and it's often easy to forget about that when we get in the weeds of our stories. So there needs to be a change in the in a state or condition of life, whether we're talking about the beginning of the story to the end of the story or the beginning of a scene to the end of the scene. So let me give you some examples to help you um, so to help solidify this concept. This is a really simple life value shift. Before it rains, which is an event, the grass outside is dry. After it rains, the grass is wet. So that's a change in the state of the environment that flows from a natural event. The same event could affect the life value of a character and might represent a shift from despair to hope if, for example, the property in question is a farm in a region suffering from a prolonged drought. So life value shifts are very specific to the particular story and particular character. So here's an example of a change that directly relates to the character's state. Before eating, event, a person is hungry, state. And after eating, she is full and very happy. (laughs) That's a change in her physiological state. And if she had been deprived of food for two weeks, that event could cause her life value shift to go from potential death to life. All right, here's a final example of a value shift in the context of a story scene. Before a man meets a potential love interest, which is an event and an experience, he might feel lonely, which is his state. And after the two connect, they are together, at least temporarily, and he might feel companionship. The same scene might be characterized as a change from ignorance, if the two don't know of each other, have never met, to attraction, if they like each other. Either way, the event causes a change in the mental or emotional state of the character. And over the course of an entire courtship love story, for example, Pride and Prejudice, two characters might move from ignorance, where they know nothing about one another, all the way to commitment, where they are pledging to spend the rest of their lives with each other. Okay, so your scenes, again, will have a variety of life value changes, and some will be more directly relevant, and some will be indirectly relevant to the genre's life value at stake. The life values you want to look for when you're evaluating your scene might be a little bit different from, but should still be connected to the life value at stake in your genre. And again, all of that, the life values at stake in the particular genres, I have a a PDF that you can download that has all that information. So if you're needing that, just pop by the show notes and grab them. Okay. Back to turning points. I told you I was turning this back around to where we were before. We have two types of turning points, two possibilities, but a single turning point could contain both. 
It can be character action, where a character does something that changes circumstances significantly, or a revelation, which is information that is revealed or recognized that changes the circumstances significantly. So if you've ever heard someone recommend using exposition as ammunition, what they mean is to save backstory and other information that the reader needs to know for a moment when it can be used as a revelatory turning point through conflict so that it forces the character into a dilemma. It becomes much more meaningful when it's tied to a pivotal moment than it is when it's one fact among many delivered in a paragraph about the character or the world. When we're filling out the StoryGrid spreadsheet, we track turning points as well as their type across the, the, all the scenes within the story to be sure that we're not using the same type too often. Now here's a key tip for innovating your turning points. If you think the reader is expecting a certain type, consider using the other. And remember that you can use both. There can be a there can be a character action that reveals information that changes circumstances significantly. Okay, the one of the reasons that turning points are so important is that they affect the reader's experience. That I mentioned earlier that turning points keep the reader turning pages when they're well executed. They keep the reader engaged with the story and they create that really satisfying emotional experience of reading a great story. And here's why. There's a kind of progression when the turning point happens. The reader feels surprised, right? Because there's a gap between what they were expecting and what actually happens. Then the reader is curious about why that gap occurred. What happened here? Why was I, you know, how did they, um, how did this excellent writer fool me? Then the reader reviews all the information they already know about the characters and events of the stories. And at that point, the reader gains new insight and new understanding of all the events that have come before. It's as if you've changed the context or changed the paradigm. Now, not all of the, your turning points are going to be that big and bold, that they're going to change everything that, that the reader thinks about the story. But here's a great example from The Empire Strikes Back. When we had a revelatory, that is, turning point, Darth Vader tells Luke Skywalker who his father is. Now, the setup for this moment started long before in episode four, and it builds to this moment in The Empire Strikes Back. The revelation is surprising, and it causes us to review everything we know about Luke's father. We think about why the information was kept from him, for example, and story events and facts begin to fall into place. We've got a completely new configuration of this story and the events as we gain an understanding of what's really at stake for the characters. So mastering these moments in your stories will give you a powerful tool for engaging with your readers. I don't like to talk about it like manipulation, but that's why we go to stories in part. We want our emotions to be kind of manipulated in a, in a good way and not for evil ends. But 
this is one of the strongest tools you have for doing this. So now let's take everything we know about progressive complications and apply them to today's submission. The best way to do this really is to do the full scene analysis, which I've done and I'll go through, but of course you can always go check it out in the show notes. First, we determine the story event. First, one, what are the characters literally doing? Again, this is just what's happening on the surface. Esmeralda is attending her first trial as a juror, which is what she hopes her profession will be. Two, what is the essence of what the characters are doing? So this is the subtext, or in other words, this is what the character wants. Now it's really clear, generally speaking, Esmeralda doesn't want to disappoint the Empress, but more specifically in this scene, I think her goal is to show that she's a good candidate for this position. She even makes the point, you know, when she's trying to, she's called on to vote in the case that if she messes up, she can kiss this job goodbye. So it is really important. And I think that that's another, um, that's more evidence that her specific intent is to keep her job and show she's a good candidate. Okay, question three is what life value has changed for one or more of the characters in the scene? So there are, this is a complex scene, and it's even longer than I shared with you. So there's a lot going on, but I focused on a couple of things. And when you're doing a scene analysis like this, you want to look at as many things as change as possible so that you can zero in on what is the most important one. So you have a lot to choose from. So in this one, obviously the defendant goes from guilty to not guilty, but he's not our point of view character. So we're going to look more closely at Esmeralda. We could say she goes from inexperienced to initiated because she's never been, she's never witnessed a trial before and certainly never voted in one. Okay, we might also say she goes from being kind of pretty confident to having doubts both about her ability to do the job a little bit and about the system. It's really mild, I think, but um, becomes more apparent once you move into the sentencing phase of the trial. So again, be sure to check out the rest of the submission in the show notes. So then the fourth question is, which life value is most relevant to the global genre? The one, the life value change that we would put in a story grid spreadsheet or that you might want to, you know, keep in your notes so you understand what's really happening in this scene. So obviously this always depends on what the overall genre is. And I don't know that for certain, but given the way that this story begins, I think it's a safe bet that this is a coming of age or worldview maturation story. The life value at stake in that case is naivete to sophistication. So here that shift from confidence to doubt is likely a very important change that represents a challenge to Esmeralda's worldview. Okay, so after we figure out the story event, then we would want to look at the five commandments. So what's the inciting incident? For me, I think what, what the inciting incident is, is that Esmeralda learns that the trial will be a murder case. And it's not explicitly stated, but I mean, it, 
It is known that this is not a common thing that happens. So we know that it's important. And to me, what I read into that is that it's all the more important that Esmeralda do a good job, right? So again, I think this fits really well with the essential action or scene goal that she really wants to prove herself in this, to the empress in this, in this scene. So what are the progressive complications and turning point? This is what I see. And the, and the author might see it differently, and you might see it differently too. So I'm not saying these are the right answers. This is one way to interpret the scene. Okay, so the first progressive complication that I see, major complication that I see, is that the accused doesn't look like a murderer. So Esmeralda has faith in the system going into this, but the fact that the accused doesn't look like a murderer is a question in her mind about whether this person is guilty. The second progressive complication, or major progressive complication I see, is that the defendant seems unperturbed by the evidence that's mounting against him. And that's something, again, that Esmeralda notices, you know, with her very attentive attention, she's picking up on these things. So then there's a moment when the facts and evidence don't really make sense to Esmeralda, given her view of the world and how people behave. And this is the moment when she's when she thinks something feels wrong here. Arthur seems to be honest, but it's a stretch to think that Reeves would set his friend's house on fire over a promotion, right? That, that passage there. And, and I see that as, you know, like the, we have escalating um, challenges to her view that, that, that A, that she can handle this, and B, that the system is fair and, and just, So the turning point I see in this scene is when the empress expects her to vote with the other jurors on the guilt of the defendant, right? This is not something she expected would happen. She thought she would simply be an observer. Suddenly, she has these questions. She's had these questions through hearing the testimony, and suddenly she has to make a decision based on what she's seen and also, to a certain extent, there's a lot of pressure that we can discern from the Empress, from Inga, to vote along with everyone else, despite the questions that she has. So that turning point forces her into a crisis, which is the third of the five commandments. Is he guilty or not guilty? Or more specifically, does she vote for guilt or does she rebel in essence against all the others and say he's not guilty because she has a question. And then the fifth question is, what is the resolution? Well, with a unanimous verdict of guilt, the empress decides the sentence shall be death. That's a big change, right? She didn't know. Like even in the beginning, when she heard the rumor that it was going to be a murder trial, she's kind of thinking, oh no, probably not. That's unlikely. It's just a rumor, right? But here she is. She has voted in a case where, for, where the defendant is going to receive the death penalty. Like that's a really big deal. So what does this mean for this scene? 
Well, you can probably tell by the analysis that, that this is a scene that works. We have change. We have conflict. We have her making a decision, a big decision, you know, and all of it relates to her goal of pleasing the empress and showing that she can handle serious cases like this one. Now, this scene is fairly complex. There's a lot going on. And the complications to me seem related to the scene goal, though there's a little leap in logic required to make the connection, which I think is fine. Readers don't like to have everything spelled out for them or handed to them so long as they can follow what's happening. They don't want to um, feel like they're being spoon-fed and like to feel smart that they've figured things out. So what are some possible next steps for Anna in, you know, with this scene? Well, as usual, it depends on where she is in the process of revision. And my standard caveat is that my suggestions depend on whether I've read the scene the way that you intended it, right? If I've read it wrong, you might want to consider if your intention is making it on the page. But always remember, too, that I'm reading a very small portion of a very large story. So no matter who is giving you feedback on your story, you want to consider it, but focus on what you know about your story and what your intention is. Okay, with those caveats, I think Anna might consider adding more of Esmeralda's reactions to the evidence and particularly what she makes of the verdict. Although that personal reflection about her participation in this man's death could, you know, might be something you want to save for a later scene. So that's something to consider. But she's our point of view filter for all of these events. And it's important for us to see what she makes of the events before her. And we have long passages of testimony. And it might be useful to share some of her, more of her internal reactions, though maybe not, depending on what your intention is, again, for later scenes. We do see her reaction at pivotal moments, but consider whether the scene reads stronger if we see a little more of what the events mean to her. And especially uh, one point that I think might make it stronger is what she's weighing before she makes her decision in terms of the guilt of Mr. Reeves, because it seems like her her focus in that moment is on not screwing up before the empress, which is important because that's her single and it's great to bring us back around to that. But if she's having any um, concerns because she doesn't, you know, because of those progressive complications and not being certain about the guilt of Mr. Reeves, then that might be a good place and time to mention it. But again, overall, this is a really well ex executed working scene. So nice work. For today's editorial mission, I want you to gather progressive complications. So as you read or watch stories, identify the obstacles that stand between, well, not just the obstacles, but the tools and the irrelevant events and people and places and things and the unexpected events that stand between the protagonist and their goal. Can you identify the level of conflict? Is it internal? Is it interpersonal? Or is it extrapersonal? 
Now, I want you, again, I want you to identify those and then begin compiling a list of those progressive complications from the stories and scenes that you read and watch so that you can use them as you plan, draft, and revise the scenes in your stories. And of course, within the context of your own life, consider the progressive complications you have encountered. Look at small and large barriers and the levels of conflict. Consider how you felt when you faced those challenges. And then also consider how you got around them. Did you change your goal? Did you come up with some um, new skill? Or, you know, like how did you overcome those challenges? So I want you to do that again as a regular exercise because your reactions and emotions will inform what your characters think, say, and do in similar circumstances. And again, that is what's really behind the advice to write what you know. And as a reminder, you can grab the editorial mission and sign up to have the editorial missions delivered right to your inbox from the show notes, which you can find at writership.com slash episodes. As we wrap things up for this week, I offer deep gratitude to Anna, today's author, and to our Patreon crew for supporting the podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to show your support, visit patreon.com slash writership, where you can check out deep scene dive calls and Q&A calls that happen every month. If you'd like to show your support in other ways, tell a writing friend about the podcast or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you'd like to have your scene critiqued on the podcast, visit writership.com slash submissions. And if you'd like to get some accountability support for your writing goals, visit writership.com slash slack. That's S-L-A-C-K. That's it for episode 133. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast.